Well, friends, welcome back to another episode of Being and Making Disciples. I am very excited to have another guest on the show with us today, and that is Father Isaac Augustin Morales, a Dominican priest and professor at Providence College in Rhode Island. So, Father Isaac Augustin, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for letting me shamelessly promote myself and my book. Oh. <laughs> we love we love shameless promotions of books that can help us evangelize. Um, well, before we jump in, I wanted to ask if you could share a little bit about why you chose the name or maybe your superior chose the name for you, Isaac Augustine. Yeah. So first, I'll say something about how the name was chosen. So the way that it works in our province, at least in our province of the Dominicans, is that during our postulancy. We have a two-week postulancy in our province. Um, but during that time, the novice master speaks with each of the postulants and asks, what names are you thinking about? Um, and he asks each of the novices to give, or soon to be novices, to give him three options. And he'll pick one of the three. But generally speaking, if you have a good reason for the name that you want to receive, uh, and there's nobody else in formation, so none of the student brothers in DC who have it already, um, you'll get it. So I got my first choice, which, which was Isaac Augustine. I just go by Father Isaac because Father Isaac Augustine would be just a mouthful. <laughs> um, but I picked the name so uh, for a few reasons. First, uh, I like the name Isaac. I just like how it sounded was one thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. So then I started to think about why why would it be a good name? So Order of Preachers, Isaac doesn't say all that much in scripture. It doesn't seem like a good fit, but there are actually a lot of things about Isaac uh, that make it very fitting. So one is that um, the name Isaac means laughter, right? So it's a reflection of the joy that should characterize our lives. Um, another is that according to later Jewish and Christian traditions, um, Isaac, at the time of the binding of Isaac, when Abraham was called to offer him up uh, on Mount Moriah, was actually an adult and actually willingly offered himself uh, in union with Abraham or in obedience to Abraham, rather. In fact, there's there's this really stunning passage that I think it, I'm pretty sure is in the book. Uh, this first century Jewish historian Josephus retells the story, and Isaac is eager to go to offer himself. He says, it would be shameful for me not to do this, you know, to wow. be obedient to Abraham and to, and to God. And a lot of people probably don't know this, but in our actual profession formula, when we make our vows, uh, the only vow that we explicitly make is the vow of obedience. Now, of course, poverty and chastity are presumed it's in our constitutions, but we explicitly make the vow of obedience. And so Isaac, who is obedient to Abraham and to God, is actually a really fitting uh, patron to have for a Dominican. Um, other things that were pointed out to me later that I'm embarrassed to say that I hadn't realized on my own was one, one of the uh, sisters who was at the um, school attached to the church where our novitiate is pointed out, well, yeah, and it's a Eucharistic name as well, of course, in the Roman canon, the sacrifice of Abraham, our father in faith. Um, and then another one that I'm really embarrassed that I didn't think of on myself is that Isaac actually is mentioned in the letter to the Galatians, on which I wrote my dissertation. <laughs> and Isaac, Paul describes Isaac as the son of the free woman. So it's also the symbol of freedom uh, and promise. Um, so that's why I picked Isaac. Uh, Augustine, I when I was a master's student at Notre Dame back in 2001, I took a seminar on Augustine with uh, John Cavadini. I don't know if you know him. He's a oh, yeah, yeah. phenomenal professor at Notre Dame, uh, and I was hooked. Um, and so I've had a had a devotion to St. Augustine since then. Uh, also could relate a lot. Um, I mean, I'm a later vocation. I was in my mid-30s when I entered. Uh, and part of the reason was, uh, I mean, I wasn't 
wild or anything, but I wanted to get married and have kids. So I, I could relate to St. Augustine, Lord, make me chase. But And also, you know, Augustine wandered for a long time before he got baptized. It was a good 10, 12 years. Uh, yeah, yeah. He was about 18 or so until he finally received the sacrament. So, and similarly, it, it took me a long time to warm up to the idea of having a priestly and a religious vocation. Um, so that's why I picked St. Augustine. Those are those are great stories. The uh, the layers to Isaac, I never would have would have expected that. I mean, there's I think you went four deep there. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Well, as a as a Floridian, I probably need to apologize because somewhere along the line, we have ruined the pronunciation of Augustine <laughs> um, because we have a city that everyone here calls Saint Augustine, mm -hmm. and everyone outside of the state calls Saint Augustine. And we have to say, no, 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 that's not how you say well, it. You know, it's funny. I remember when I was in college, people saying that it's a, apparently a Catholic Protestant divide, although that doesn't always work out. But apparently, like Protestants call it St. Augustine, Catholic St. Augustine. But I know plenty of Protestants who say Augustine. So I don't I don't know yeah. if that works out. But yeah, yeah. Whatever. I wonder if it's, it's yeah. I'm, I was originally from the Midwest, so my guess is I have like a Midwestern pronunciation of, of romance languages and names to blame. Hmm. Well, you just wrote a book and <laughs> we're excited to talk about it. So it's called The Bible and Baptism. And this is part of a series that goes mm -hmm. deeper into all of the sacraments, which I have to say, I was I was really uh, happy to discover because um, I'm at a point in my life where um, I kind of you know, I've been Catholic my whole life. I've got a master's in theology from a great school. I, I've kind of always exposed myself to the mysteries of the faith. And yet, uh, there are times when the sacraments don't come alive for me like they should. And I know the problem is here. It's not, you know, it's with me. It's not with the sacraments. And mm -hmm. so to have a resource to dive into, to, uh, to open my eyes again to the beauty and the mystery of the, of the, of the sacraments uh, is a gift. And so, one, just thanks for writing it because I... Uh, I found myself falling in love with baptism again as I was reading it. And I know other people are going to do that as well. well I'm delighted to hear that. Thanks. Yeah, and it's, the series, I mean, the, it's a great idea for a series because the idea is just to go back to the source, to go back to scripture, which is where the primary imagery for these sacraments comes from. Yeah. And it was, it, it was exceedingly rich. Um, I mean, just the, the number of different ways of thinking about the, the roles of water, what water does from, mm. um, from, you know, being the source of life to purifying us and, and the cause of death. It was just the, the whole thing was great. So I highly recommend it. Um, and we will include a link to where people can buy it in the show notes. So when they download the episode, they can, they can see that very quickly. Um, so our, our angle here on the show being and making disciples. Um, it's the essential vocation of the Christian. So St. Paul VI and Evangelia Nunciandi said the church exists to evangelize. And so that's really why we're here. We want to help people embrace that missionary vocation. Uh, going back to Cavadini, he wrote a great article that I remember reading recently uh, on the the idea of co-responsibility. And he said, I don't even like the, the term co-workers. I want people to know they're co-responsible for the mission of the gospel. Mm. And that's really resonated with me ever since I read that to, to think, well, this is this is my mission, or rather this is Jesus's mission that he has invited me into. Yeah, um, every Christian. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And so, I mean, th there's no, there, there doesn't need to be a professional class of evangelizers. It's everyone's job. So mm. whenever we, we discuss a resource, it's always with that lens. Um, so it's how can this help us live that better? 
Um, so how would you say a richer understanding of the sacrament of baptism can help us do two things, live as disciples and help other people become disciples? Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more that the Christian vocation is to follow Jesus Christ, which is what discipleship means, and to invite others to follow him and in him to find what we're all looking for in other things. <laughs> Only in him will we find what we're looking for. But um, I mentioned how the point of this series is to go back to the source. If you want to go back to the source of discipleship, you have to go back to baptism. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says to the 11 disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's the first part of making disciples is to baptize them. And so this book will help us to, insofar as we understand baptism better, um, and insofar as we cooperate with that understanding, then we will live a better life of discipleship because baptism gives us the pattern of what discipleship looks like. Um, and I think understanding it better will also, as you said, it gave you a deeper appreciation of the great gift that we receive in baptism. And so that should motivate us to invite others to accept that gift, to receive that gift, because it's such an amazing gift. So like some of the things that I'm hoping people will come away with after reading this book, one, the first one is just just this deeper appreciation of the great gift of baptism. Um, this was certainly true for me actually in writing the book. Uh, I came to a much deeper appreciation of the sacrament through writing and thinking about it. Um, and I hope that'll be the case for others. Um, one of the, one of my favorite, probably my favorite chapter in the book was the seventh chapter on baptism in the name and the idea of baptism making us a temple of the Lord. Uh, and that should really inspire people to live out their vocation um, their Christian vocation and also their particular vocation um, more intentionally uh, and more reverently. If you think about it, if you think about the idea that the Lord of the universe dwells within you, you should live with a kind of reverence. And reverence doesn't mean, you know, somberness and being gloomy and all that, but just this yeah, awareness yeah. that the Lord is in you, right? And it should, it should motivate you to ask the Lord for the grace to live out this vocation better because we we stink on our own. We can't do it very well on our own. Yeah, yeah. That's a, um, the, the reflection of just the name of Jesus was much deeper than I expected. You know, I saw, okay, but, you know, baptism in the name. I thought, all right, that's, we're going to talk about the name of Jesus. I actually expected that to be pre predominantly a discussion on kind of the debate that some denominations have. Well, do you need to be baptized in a Trinitarian formula mm -hmm. or just in the name of Jesus? And so when it was much deeper than that. I was like, this is amazing. This is, it was really, really good. Um, and that the, uh, the idea of living with, with reverence of almost in, in awe of who God has called us to be, mm -hmm. um, was a good reminder. Uh, the, the thing that's coming to mind right now, um, Pope Francis gave the, uh, the definition of accompaniment as it was something like, um, taking off your shoes in the, out of reverence for the mystery of the other. Mm. Um, and realizing, um, kind of with, as C.S. Lewis said, there's no such thing as an ordinary person. Like that's yeah, an yeah. immortal, but that soul is immortal and will Related last forever. Glory. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> one of the uh, best sermons ever written. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so. Yeah. Another thing that I hope, um, it'll make people more intentional about the way that they enter church. This is something that I say at the end of the book, uh, most Catholics are baptized as infants, which I think yeah. is a great gift. I, I yeah, give yeah. some reasons for it at the in the appendix. Um, but so it's easy to just forget about our baptism, not even to think about it. I, I was that way um, for a long time. 
But when we typically, when we walk into the church, what we do is we mindlessly probably <laughs> dip our fingers in the holy water and cross ourselves and just kind of get on with our life. Uh, and I hope that this will make people a little bit more aware. So I've been more aware now that simple action has so much packed into it because the holy water is supposed to be a reminder of our baptism. It reminds yeah. us of our baptism. It's also a, a symbol of purifying ourselves as we enter into worship. And of course, when we cross ourselves, um, we'll talk about this a little bit later, I think, that's the pattern of the life that baptism introduces us into, the pattern of the death and resurrection of Christ. And of course, we typically enter into church for the sake of worship. So, um, which is again, the fulfillment of our baptismal vocation. Yeah, yeah. Um there's there's so much i mean that we could i feel like we could have we could take each chapter especially or, or even just each theme like the idea of worship and the the richness that you brought out with that but uh we'll restrain ourselves and, yeah. and we'll, we'll keep it in the interest uh, we'll, of time <laughs> yeah yeah um so again before we, we jump deep into the topics um i i try to live with a sacramental worldview recognizing that everything speaks of the goodness of god if we have the eyes to see um, one of my favorite poets is Gerard Manley Hopkins, and he's got this, uh, this beautiful poem uh, in or God's Grandeur. And the, the opening line, I believe, is the world is charged with the grandeur of God. And he mm -hmm. just goes on to describe all of these simple things that are stunningly beautiful that reveal to us God's goodness. And it closes with the line, he fathers forced forth whose beauty is past change. Mm -hmm. um, and thinking of of God as the is a creator who delights in goodness and beauty and, and the richness of the created world. Um, that was that was really how I started uh, thinking about the way you were talking about water. And I thought, my gosh, could God have chosen any better physical element to use in this sacrament? Mm -hmm. um, but how do you think we could open our eyes more to uh, to all of those signs that point us back to God? Yeah, well, I love the way you put it, that if we have the eyes to see, then creation will be um, not transparent, but it will, it will lift our minds to the Lord. Uh, and I'm going to begin with an answer that might sound a little bit Protestant. <laughs> uh, I would say return to scripture and return especially to the Old Testament, because uh, especially the Psalms, Proverbs, they're these beautiful reflections on how scripture, or excuse me, how creation reveals God. Think of Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God, the wonder of his works display the firmament. Or think of, you know, Proverbs, you know, go to the Anto sluggard and learn to be wise. Um, <laughs> there's uh, the beautiful passage in Proverbs 8, this hymn about Lady Wisdom, and it talks about how Lady Wisdom was alongside God at the creation and was delighting, was playing with creation, um, or delighting in the world that the Lord made and that she was the pattern for. Uh, or Psalm 104, which is one of my favorite parts of the divine office, which sadly only comes around, you know, once every four weeks or so. Uh, but there's a line in there where he talks about the seas and how God created the seas and the ships are sailing there and the monsters he made to play with. <laughs> At least that's the translation <laughs> that we use for the divine office. And there's this beautiful sense of, of how God delights in creation. You know, most people who make things if it's good, <laughs> delight in them. It's yeah, know, yeah. Are they playing a beautiful piece of music or making a beautiful sculpture or painting? Uh, and God is the perfect artist who makes an amazing piece of art <laughs> that is the universe, and He delights in it. And yeah, we should yeah. have that same kind of delight. Um, oh, that's 
Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it it's true that creation reflects God and that we can see him in and through it, but we're also broken. And so we need to be healed in order to see to see it more clearly. Um, and scripture can heal and elevate our vision. It's uh, it's so funny that you bring up you say, you say that and, and your answer was go to the Old Testament, go to Scripture. Mm -hmm. Maybe that was your time at Duke. Um, <laughs> Perhaps. But, um, the the one of the um, the canticles in the Liturgy of the Hours that I used to groan at was mm -hmm. the Canticle of Daniel. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> because it's so long, and it would, you know, I was probably in college when I started praying that, and it uh, would come up, and it'd be like, "Okay, frost and dew, bless the sun; cold and rain, bless or bless the Lord, not bless yeah. the sun, bless the Lord." And it and it was just this litany, and somewhere along the line, I a, a switch flipped in my head where I started to delight in recognizing how all of those things praise the Father, mm -hmm. and. Um, so that, but it was probably by re, like reading that and actually taking the time once I stopped rolling my eyes and groaning, um, and was able to, to say, let me, let me praise God with all these things. Mm -hmm. Um, then, uh, I really enjoyed and, and my eyes were opened. I would say a little bit more. Yeah. So, it's a beautiful canticle. Um, one other thing that I would say, and I'll say this sometimes when I, um, when I'm explaining to students why we do blessings, for example, blessings with holy water, because from the outside, it can look kind of weird and ridiculous, right? Here's this guy, he's wearing this funny clothes, he puts on a stole, you know, yeah, yeah. saying some words and sprinkling water around. Uh, and what I try to explain to them is that God communicates to us in a way that's appropriate to the kind of creatures that we are. You know, we're physical, we're made of stuff. And so it's appropriate to use things like water, bread, wine, that sort of thing. But we're also spiritual creatures with intellects. And so it's appropriate to use words to communicate to our minds. And the sacraments are the perfect illustration of this. They, each of the sacraments has both words and physical either things or actions. Um, and so if we reflect on the kind of people that, that we are, then we should recognize okay, I need to be aware and pay attention to physical things as well, because God communicates to me through those things as well. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes it, uh, I mean, total sense. There's so many times where I've, um, as just somebody who's been involved in ministry, I've uh, maybe given a reflection or uh, planned a retreat and failed to recognize the necessary physical components and things just fell flat. And I thought, wow, I wish I, I would have had some kind of ritual. So, you know, an opportunity to just like physically, you know, whether it's, write something or or make some physical gesture to the lord mm. um and i i failed to do that and i wonder how often did i uh could i have made the experience better for people by including you know both our natures yeah we're not just angels that are you know no. floating around, <laughs> stuck in a stuck in a prison in no sense are we angels <laughs> yeah yeah either metaphysically or, or just, you know morality yeah. yeah we'll go on record just as a reminder people that's not a catholic idea yeah. <laughs> um, well, go and jump in a little bit more into the book now. So um, two things that I don't know if, if surprise is the right word, but really stood out to me um, were a, a couple of unique focuses you had. And one was the the focus on worship. And we alluded to that already, that baptism mm -hmm. prepares us for this. Um, and it was a little surprising to realize that I'd never connected the idea of my own baptism or probably that of others with worship. It was almost more... Um, probably self-centered of like, oh, thank goodness, original sin's gone. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a, yeah. a new creation here. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I've probably made that same mistake with all of the sacraments. Um, 
even in some cases the Eucharist, where I, I think of the Eucharist not as proper worship of the Father, but as some a token that I receive um, that helps me be good and have a good life, which is really for me, I'm just I'm not saying this for other people. It's egocentric. Mm -hmm. um, so let's let's start there. How does baptism prepare us and orient us towards fulfilling our nature, which is worshiping God? Yeah, well, it's funny. I'll say that it kind of surprised me too, actually. One of the delightful things about writing this book was it was really a process of discovery. I didn't have like a clear plan, like, okay, this is what I'm going to say about baptism. I had, you know, different texts and ideas that I was going to explore, but the pattern just kind of emerged on its own, the pattern of worship. Um, and so as I was writing more, I thought this should be kind of the framing, uh, the, the framework for the book. Uh, and it's funny because I... I was talking to one of my Dominican brothers uh, and he was asking, so what's kind of the basic thing? I said, well, you know, baptism leads us to worship. He said, oh yeah, that's pretty standard. I said, okay, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's not groundbreaking, but like there are so many beautiful and interesting ways that scripture really supports this. Um, and I mean, he's right in a sense that canon law itself says, you know, baptism, you know, and gives people entry into the rest of the sacramental life of the church and into worship. But um I discovered, especially as I was writing the section on the Old Testament, this beautiful pattern that you would have people passing through water, doing something involving water, and then they would worship after that. So there's some obvious examples. Noah is in the ark, and is the first thing he does once the water subside, he gets out of the ark, and he offers sacrifice to God. Or uh, Moses in the crossing of the Red Sea. Moses leads the Israelites through the Red Sea, and first in Exodus chapter 16, uh, God gives them manna. And in the context of that, he implicitly, not implicit, he orders them to uh, observe the Sabbath, which is a day of worship, right? He says, on the, you know, every day you only get enough for one day, but then mm -hmm. on the sixth day, get enough for two days because you're not going to work on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath yeah, is yeah. rest. And rest means not just like uh, kicking back, it means worshiping the Lord. Um, and of course, a few chapters later, you have the establishment of the covenant with sacrifices. And I saw this again and again. You see this in the Psalms. You see this in, in the prophet Isaiah. Ezekiel, of course, there's that beautiful vision at the end of the water flowing from the temple, uh, indicating that the genuine source of life is God himself, symbolized by this water that gives life to the world around it. So there's just such beautiful imagery in the Old Testament for that connection between passing through water and then offering worship to God. Um, another great example, though, which I owe to one of my colleagues here at Providence College, my co colleague Stephen Long. There are too many Stephen Longs out there in theology. <laughs> um, but um, so this Stephen Long, who is my Old Testament colleague here, he tipped me off to the book by one of his mentors, um, Peter Lightheart, who's a Reformed theologian. Uh, and he wrote his dissertation on baptism. And he argues that the most important Old Testament prefiguration of baptism is the ordination rite. For, so the ordination mm -hmm. rite that is described in Exodus and in Leviticus when Moses ordains Aaron and Aaron's sons as priests. And the interesting thing about that rite is it's the only rite in the Old Testament where one person washes another person with water and then he receives this white garment and there are a couple of other things. He's anointed. There's a few, again, a number of um, elements of that rite that we see again in baptism. And so the idea is that baptism makes us priests. 
right? Most Catholics don't think about they. We t- Catholics will frequently think this is oh, the Protestant idea that we're all priests. Yeah, yeah. No, we are all priests. Um, and if you don't mind, I'd like to read. Um, so one of the great uh, features of this series is that they wanted these little um, sidebars, um, just exploring different aspects of the sacrament. And I found this great quotation from a sermon by Leo the Great. So this is the Pope <laughs> from the fifth century talking yeah, yeah. about the priesthood. And so he says in this sermon, uh, all who have been regenerated in Christ are made kings by the sign of the cross and consecrated priests by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. All, not just pre, you know, ministerial priests, but everyone who's been baptized. So he says, apart from the particular service that our ministry entails, all Christians who live spiritual lives according to reason recognize that they have a part in the royal race and the priestly office. What could be more royal than the soul in subjection to God ruling over its own body? What could be more priestly than dedicating a pure conscience to the Lord and offering spotless sacrifices of devotion from the altar of the heart? That's really rich. And I mean, what a, what a testament to the baptismal priesthood. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And that um, it's funny you brought that up because I've, I've thought about that a lot, especially with respect to that, you know, that quote from Cavadini or that that article from Cavadini I read mm-hmm. that um, this is uh, we can't forget that we as by virtue of our baptism, we are priest, prophet and king. Mm-hmm. And that if that's just a meaningless title, then uh, at least for me, I have I don't fully understand that. So there's mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it does out of out of reverence and respect for the ministerial priesthood i think people are they're uncomfortable with that idea well i'm a i'm a priest too i don't want to take anything away from mm-hmm. that beautiful sacrament um and I, I think we need to lean a little bit more into the both and of that like yes you're you are a priest and you do mm-hmm. a an essential service for us mm-hmm. in the life of the church and mm-hmm. i am a priest and i have a duty to sanctify everything for the lord yeah, amen. Um, one other aspect about baptism worship, and I just want to come back to this because it was my favorite chapter, <laughs> was the chapter on baptism in the name. Uh, and it's my favorite chapter for a couple of reasons. One, I think it was actually really pretty interesting, and it, it contributed something that I had never thought of before. Um, another reason it's my favorite is because I actually got the idea for the chapter in the midst of worship. So the summer that I was writing the chapter, I was on retreat uh, down in North Guilford, Connecticut. We have a monastery of Dominican nuns there. Uh, and if you don't mind, I want to put mm. a plug in here. If there's if there are any young women out there who are considering a religious vocation and love the intellectual life, please consider these nuns in Connecticut, yeah, yeah. North Guilford. Um, but I was celebrating mass for them. Uh, and I was praying to our father and we said, hallowed be thy name. And just fireworks went off. For some reason, it made me think of all the background to the name in the Old Testament and how that might connect to um, to baptism. So I, I went back to the to the priest's quarters and I wrote it down immediately. I was like, don't forget this idea. <laughs> um, and there, the name in the Old Testament is so significant. And in the chapter, I focus on two particular things. Uh, one is that the name is one of the ways that the Old Testament speaks about God dwelling in the midst of Israel, particularly in the temple. So Deuteronomy chapter 12 talks about how the Lord will um, point out, designate this place where his name will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. And you see that in a number of places when Solomon's dedicating the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, there's all this talk about the name dwelling there. But the other significant thing about the name 
is there's this phrase calling on or invoking the name of the Lord yeah. in the Old Testament. And that sometimes that can just mean crying out to the Lord for help. Um, but in a number of places, it's also closely associated with offering worship. Uh, and in the Acts of the Apostles at Pentecost, when Peter is giving his first speech, he appeals to this text from Joel, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then when they ask, what are we to do? It says, repent, believe, and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So um, the, the name that is invoked over us and that we invoke in baptism, it's, uh, it's closely connected to this notion of being a temple for the Lord's presence. And, uh, you know, as you said, baptism prepares us for worship, orients mm -hmm. us towards that. So mm -hmm. it's almost, I think, to, to understand the Old Testament tradition that mm -hmm. the, the apostles and the first Christians would have been steeped in, um, that helps us to see. Like Peter didn't, he didn't need to make explicit for that audience that this is for worship. You are baptized so that you can worship because mm -hmm. that's a, it's the, like the pillar of the Jewish faith then mm -hmm. you worship the father you or yep. you worship god rather and mm -hmm. there's there's the um i think sometimes we think of our our entire duty to god is in moral living and mm -hmm. we can impose that on you know anybody really so but to try to impose that on the first christians yeah they were they were imp uh, impressed by the importance of moral living and by um the law but more so, they knew the importance of worshiping God because they still had temple sacrifice, mm -hmm. which is like, that's that's a weird notion for us. Yeah, yeah, it is very strange. But it's also important to, to point out that this is why God created us, right? In, in the early chapters of Genesis, there's, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but um, the first creation account really depicts creation as a temple. There's all sorts of connections between, um, you know, the number seven, um, the way that the creation is organized, it culminating in the Sabbath rest, which is associated with worship and with God dwelling in his temple. And then in chapters two and three, create, um, the garden is depicted as a kind of sanctuary, the inner sanctum of, of the temple of creation, the Holy of Holies. Uh, and you have things like gold and onyx, these precious materials that were used in the temple. And Adam is put there, and it says that God put him, the Lord put him there to cultivate or to till and to keep the garden. And you might think, oh, ho hum, that's what you do with the garden, right? You, yeah, yeah. And you cultivate it. But the combination of those two words in Hebrew appears also in texts that describe what the priests would do in the tabernacle and in the temple. Um, our primary vocation is to worship. That's what we were made for. <laughs> it was to worship the Lord. Yeah, that, that, you know, even as you were saying, Adam's job was to to tend and to keep. I thought mm -hmm. he's a priest. He's managing the temple. Like, that's yep. what that's what he's doing. Yep. Um, now, the I want to touch a little bit on the idea that we were created to worship, mm -hmm. um, because when I when I recognize the strain of modernity in myself, mm -hmm. I think, well, am I made to worship? Am I not made like, don't I have my own ability oh. to direct my purpose? And um I, as I step back and reflect on that, I realize that's that's a that's egoism in me to say I should be the author of my own destiny. I should be the author of my own my own life and say, well, this is um, this is what I want to do with my life, and I think that would be the best thing. Um, how? What do you think uh, is is a way that we can think about 
um, being created for worship that mm -hmm. would help people understand this isn't a, it's not an, an imposition. It's not mm -hmm. something um, that limits our freedom. I would, I would say two things. The first thing I would say is it's not a question of whether you're going to worship or not. It's a question of whom or what are you going to worship? Everybody worships something. There's that old Bob Jones song, you got to serve somebody. <laughs> you're going to have to serve somebody. Um, you know, whether it's money, career, sex, power, popularity, whatever it is, whatever it is that you put at the center of your life is what you worship. Uh, and most things, pretty much everything that you worship other than God is actually going to enslave you because you were, because the thing is, God is not in competition with the world. It's not as if like you have to worship God at the expense of enjoying things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's simply a matter of putting him first in your life, making him the center. And he created us not just to worship him, although that's the primary thing, but also to enjoy the creation that he gave us, the gifts that he's given us. Yeah. Um, and so actually worshiping God is far more liberating. Uh, in fact, it's the only thing that's liberating as opposed to worshiping other things. Uh, because whatever you worship, you make that, you end up becoming obsessed with it. And it just yeah. consumes your life and your thoughts. Um, secondly, I would say God doesn't call us to worship because he needs it. <laughs> He's doing all right on his own, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, he does it uh, for our sake. And um, I'm glad you mentioned C.S. Lewis at the beginning. I, one of my hobbies is C.S. Lewis. He's one of my favorite authors. <laughs> I, teach, I teach a course here at Providence on C.S. Lewis. And he has this beautiful reflection or this meditation on praise in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. Um, and he asks, you know, why is the psalmist always saying, praise the Lord, praise the Lord? You know, is, is God, you know, an insecure teenager who needs to be reaffirmed? You know, is he a tyrant who wants to the pants around him? And he says, no, he doesn't. God doesn't need it. Uh, and he says, there's something, there are certain experiences that naturally erupt in praise and in fact are completed in praise like without praise they're incomplete think about i was actually just telling my students this in class yesterday think about you're at this amazing concert and you're sitting there and if you're just listening to this i'm just staring blankly at the screen because <laughs> yeah yeah watching the video and you're just not into it you're not really fully enjoying the experience you uh it naturally erupts in praise and that adds to the enjoyment of the event yeah yeah or yeah. you see this beautiful sunset you're like oh my gosh that's amazing right or um lewis says you fall in love and what do you do go hide in a closet and not tell anybody no you say like <laughs> amazing like you want everybody to join in um and so praise is really or worship is really about enjoying the most amazing aspect of reality there is the god of israel <laughs> yeah that's great that, um, you know, even even for me and I'm sure for the people listening to be reminded, um, we're worshiping something all the time. It's what mm -hmm. we give our, our like our, our worth to our value. Like, mm -hmm. OK, you're worth my time and my focus and my thought and my energy. Mm -hmm. um, and I know anything that I have put too much worth in has enslaved me and has mm -hmm. left me unsatisfied and unhappy. Yeah. Um, and you know, to, to realize, no, God didn't, he's, he's good. He doesn't need that. Mm -hmm. It's for us because to, I mean, like the, the natural examples you use are perfect to, to rejoice in the beauty of nature or music mm -hmm. or art never detracts from our happiness. It adds yeah. to it. Yeah. Um, One other point, uh, not really, well, not directly related to this, but uh, the book of Exodus is so great on this because 
the contest in the book of Exodus is who's, who are the Israelites going to serve? Are they going to serve Pharaoh or are they going to serve the Lord? It's the same word. Some translations will botch this because they'll say, they'll translate it, worship in one case and serve in the other, yeah, um, yeah. which is not wrong because that is the kind of service that the Lord wants. But the choices are slave labor for Pharaoh or delighting in God's presence and worshiping him. That's an easy choice for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd be okay with that. And, and it's a beautiful image too. Like it, it, it sets the options really starkly. It's slavery or delight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, it's so funny. You never know when people do those. You know, that's why it's important to learn the biblical languages. Yeah, I guess. Right. So, you know, some people say we'll serve and, and worship, but it's the same word there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the, one of the other things that stood out to me, and especially, you know, we baptize babies. Um, mm. So there's just this bundle of, of new life and joy. Mm. Um, but the reflection on death and water as a symbol of, of death, um, which is it's probably a lot closer to most people than they realize. Um, I, I had a, an almost drowning incident myself right. in, the, yeah, in the Atlantic Ocean. And so um, like I got to the point where I set an act of contrition and was ready to go. Mm. Um, and uh, so reading this was was really fun for me. Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of funny to think like, oh, yeah, I loved reading about death. But it was <laughs> what was what was fun was um, being reminded that in baptism, we we die to our old way of life. And mm -hmm. that is what makes way for the new creation. Mm -hmm. um, so why do you think it's a, it's important for us to be aware of death as an aspect of the sacrament? And how does that help us follow Jesus? Well, I think it's important because it's actually one of the most prominent images for baptism in scripture. Uh, certainly for Paul, that's his primary lens for interpreting baptism. You said earlier in the in the podcast, um, you know, people typically think, oh, I'm going to be freed from original sin and, you know, that's it. And like, well, yes, but that's actually not the primary image that you see, at least not in the New Testament. Um, so I think it's one of the most central aspects of baptism and for good reason because the christian life is a call to die um and by dying to find this new life so it, it, i'm glad you mentioned the, the idea of infants because it's not just that they're dying but they also have this beautiful image of new life and it's it's both together if it were just dying um that would be morbid and kind of <laughs> disturbing right <laughs> yeah yeah uh, but it's dying in order to live you know christ says Unless you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But then he says, whoever tries to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So it's not just throwing away your life. It's throwing it away in order to receive what matters most and to receive genuine life. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and so baptism begins that pattern. It, it initiates us into that pattern of, of life and death, of dying and passing through death into new life. Now you had said earlier that the sign of the cross mm -hmm. um, follows that, that same formula. Mm -hmm. um, could you explain that more? Well, yeah. So the, the, you mentioned earlier that there's these, there are a variety of formulae in the new Testament for um, baptism, baptism, in the name of the father and the son of the Holy spirit or in the name of Jesus Christ. And there are lots of variations on that, but the church has settled on uh, the version in Matthew's gospel. Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And of course, that's what we say when we sign ourselves with the cross. So the cross is a reminder of, again, the pattern of this life, that it's um, it's the cross. It's giving ourselves away as Christ gave himself away for us. Uh, and we do so, again, in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Trinity. Yeah, and that um, 
it is funny to trace a, a sign of death on ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It's really what it is. But then that you get the beautiful paradox of the faith that through through you know our own death and baptism, through the death of our Savior, mm -hmm. is ushered in new life. And yeah, um, I actually I I really liked um, kind of the the extended uh, reflection on um, the death of the 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 death of, you know, if you're, especially if you're baptized in, as an adult, you could mm -hmm. really be aware of the, I'm dying to my old way of life. All of these things that I used to identify with and that I used to maybe revel in, mm -hmm. I'm intentionally cutting off and saying, I'm leaving mm -hmm. those behind and I'm turning to Jesus. Um, and not, you know, that we can do that every time we repent and every time we renew our baptism with the sign of the cross. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to me, there was something so hopeful in that to realize, like, I can say that's like that that time of my life is dead to me and not like i will still fall into to mm -hmm. sin if i'm not careful but um to really be able to say no i'm i'm a new creation in christ and he lives in me and that is what enables me to to worship and to live differently yeah and and the way he lives in us is to constantly repeat this pattern of dying and rising saint paul is so good on this in second corinthians about his life is this constant refrain of you know, suffering, dying, and then finding new life. And so it's not a one-time thing. It's It establishes this recurring pattern in our lives. And a couple of more things that I could say about that. One is it's it's actually, it gives meaning to the little deaths that we experience in this life. Um, I'm In one of my classes this semester, we're reading through Lewis's novel, Tilt We Have Faces. And um, I don't know if you've, if you've read it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Psyche at one point says, you know, uh, what if I'm supposed to die now? There would have been so many other little deaths. You know, if I married, I would have left this kingdom. You know, getting married is a kind of death. Giving birth is a kind of, there's all these little deaths. Um, but at, simultaneously, of course, they also give new life, right? Marriage is not just death, thankfully. Um, giving birth is not just death, but it also brings forth new life. Yeah. Uh, but it can be, a, all these things can be painful there, or there are aspects of suffering in them. And, um, approaching them through our baptism can give them a much deeper significance and meaning i i really like that reflection because yeah not a day goes by when there won't be some opportunity mm -hmm. for a little death of saying okay well not my will lord but this is you know even if it's okay you're waiting behind this red light you have no control mm -hmm. over that yeah. so what's your disposition going to be is mm -hmm. it going to be one of gratitude to god for the many good things or frustration that you didn't get your way right now mm-hmm yeah, and all those little deaths are great practice for <laughs> our actual biological death. Someday, yeah. you know, they can prepare us to be ready to let go and to give ourselves again as Christ gives himself on the cross. Yeah. Well, Father Isaac, um, is there anything else that you'd like to point out in the book before we we close? Um I, you know, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think I can pick just any one thing. Um, yeah. I should, maybe I should look at the table of contents. Or <laughs> what did I say yeah. after all? Um, no, I think, I think we've covered some of the, some of the most important themes. Yeah, um, I yeah. mean, there's plenty more in there to look at, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with what we've covered. <laughs> well, I want to say, um, you know, with a, for a while, I thought I wanted to get a PhD in theology. Well, not that I thought I wanted to. I thought God wanted me to. Mm -hmm. And um, he led me down a different path. But when I, I came back and, and or not came back, but when I read this book, I thought, this is what the fruit of 
uh, of theology should be like uh, scholarly theology because you're making sense of scripture and you're making it more applicable to the life of a Christian. And one of the things that, that turned me or kind of dissuaded me from pursuing um, getting a doctorate in theology mm -hmm. was, I don't know how I can make this research important to people who are actually trying to be saints. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think um, you did this and I imagine the series is, is doing, you did just that you took, uh, scholarly work and you found a way to help it uh, help us live the faith better. So thank you. That's a good well, service to us. Thank you very much. It's, you know, one of the real gifts of, of my vocation is that I can write whatever I want. <laughs> Basically, you know, um, <laughs> I mean, most scholarly books don't do this kind of thing, as you, as you said. Um, and it's understandable. That's not necessarily the place of scholarship. There's certainly plenty of room for you know, detailed technical analyses and all that. But yeah, yeah. Um, even before I became a Dominican, that was not where my heart was. My heart was, at, you know, making the faith understandable uh, and exploring the beauty of the mysteries that the Lord has has given to us. And so it's it's it was a real gift to be able to to write this book. And I'm grateful to the editors. They invited me to write this volume. This was not something that I just said, oh, I'm going to write this. Yeah, I, yeah. I had written a couple of essays on baptism and Paul. And so for that reason, they they invited me to to write this volume and it um, it was a real gift to me. I, I, I've come away with a much, much deeper appreciation of my baptism and as a result of my own vocation because every vocation is the full flowering of the primary or the fundamental baptismal call. Yeah, absolutely. Well, praise be to God for, uh, <laughs> for you know, that invite and for this work. And um, I hope that it helps many, many more people appreciate their own baptism and lead other people to, to be baptized uh, so that they can they can love and follow and worship Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Father Isaac. It was a joy to speak with you and discuss this book. And uh, if you read another book, please reach out to us and, and let us know so we could talk about that one too. I will do so. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. You bet. Well, God bless you, brother, and take you care. Too. Thanks. Mm -hmm.